Hey, brother, there's an endless road to rediscover. Hey, sister, know the water's sweet, but blood is thicker. Oh, the sky. Welcome to the Reformed Brotherhood. Brothers don't shake hands. Brothers gotta hug. I'm Tony. And I'm Jesse. Brother? I'm going to have a brother? I've always dreamed about having a brother. If you'd like to join our brotherhood, you can join our Facebook group. You can email us at reformbrotherhood at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at reformbrohood. You can also subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Hey, brother-in-law. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. What is going on, Jesse? Tony, it's just another beautiful day here in South Central Pennsylvania, where it actually is a nice balmy 64 degrees. How are you doing? Uh, I'm okay, except for the April Fool's Day joke that the meteorologist, <laughs> I suppose it probably wasn't the meteorologist, but somebody played on us. I'm assuming in the long run it was God. Uh, we got like 12 inches of snow on Saturday, Friday and Saturday, and it was April 1st. TikTok, the snow does not stop for you guys. It was terrible. So I'm going outside yesterday to do some shoveling, right? So I've got all these different areas around the church that I'm supposed to shovel because like the front steps nobody uses, but if somebody were to come to the church in the middle of the week, they probably would try to trudge up to the front steps. So we have to make sure it's shoveled even though nobody uses it. I'm with you. So I'm going down the steps and um, you know how at the bottom of the steps, there's kind of that half step. Yes. So the steps in uh, the Parsonage house, for those of us who aren't Jesse or me, um, are extremely steep. And that's because they were built in like the 1800s. And so you're going down the steps and there's like this weird half step at the bottom. And then you have to actually take another half step back up to go back into the church. And so I'm coming down the stairs and I miss the bottom step. Like I miss that half step. And you know how like when you step down and you miss a step, you're stepped down twice as hard? Yes. So I coming down and I was turning to go into the church because I was going to use the bathroom down there uh, before I went outside. And I rolled my ankle over completely. Ooh. It was terrible. I looked down as I was doing it because I felt it starting and I actually saw the bottom of my shoe facing back up at me. <laughs> so I'm, I'm down there hobbled and I'm like... I'm hopping around and like I get, I was wearing, you know, I was all bundled up to go outside to do the shoveling. It wasn't cold, but I was bundled up. And when I get that kind of injury, I get like nauseous and uh, I get like hot. And so I'm sitting on the steps, like stripping off clothes because I'm like hot and feeling like when to throw up and Ashley comes and opens the door and she's like, what's going on? And I'm like ripping off clothes, trying to get cooled (laughs) off. And so I explained to her and she's like, well, do you think it's broken? And I was like, I, I don't know. I, I just, I just need a second. I don't know. <laughs> just give so me she, a moment. So she sends the dog down because the dog was at the top of the stairs whining. She was concerned. So the dog comes down and she looks around and then she goes back up. And so I sat down at the bottom of the stairs for like another, I don't know, like 10 minutes maybe. And I like pulled myself up the stairs, like hobbling up the stairs and I get in and she's like, so do you think it's broken? Do we need to go in? And I was like, I, I just, I just need to sit. I don't, I just need a second. <laughs> Let me just it was take like, off my shirt. <laughs> it was like, there was the, it was that kind of pain where like, you can't think. Wow, you just can't intense. think. It was really bad. And, um, it was funny because after the fact, you know, I'm getting online and I'm looking up like, how do I know if I ever broke my ankle? Cause I really thought it was going to hurt. And I remembered that I had said to Ashley up the stairs when she asked me if I thought it was broken. I said, I, th- I think I heard a blank, but I couldn't remember what I said. So I said, Ashley, did I say, I think I heard a pop or did I say, I think I heard a crack? And she said, you heard pop. And I was like, good. And the, I guess the article I was reading is like, your first instinct is either to say you, th- you thought you heard or felt a pop or a crack. And if you heard a pop, you probably sprained your ankle. If you mm. heard a crack, you probably broke your ankle. That's good to know. Yeah. So. Um, I, I know I'm back up and, and hobbling around. My my ankle is probably about twice the size as my other ankle is. Wow. Um, and our our house is not friendly for people who have foot injuries. So I've been trying to like set down in one place in the house and be there for a while and then like not run up and down the stairs. But it's been rough. Man, the church steps are no joke, especially because, like you said, they were built like late probably like late 1700s, early 1800s. So they are narrow and they're steep. If you come down those approaching like any kind of speed that is too fast, like I've just shot down those, like flown right off them. 
and they are of kind of like uneven length at the bottom there. So yeah. it is like treacherous. Well, and then it's funny because so this morning, you know, we have this prayer time that we've referenced a couple of times. So I call out, hey, I, I missed a step and sprained my ankle pretty bad. Just pray for me. And then I, I'm, I'm getting people after the service coming up to me telling me stories about the way they've also fallen down those stairs. <laughs> so it's like, it's not a, it's a pretty, you know, dad comes and he's like, one time I fell through the stairs and I put my whole hand through the window. <laughs> so it's, it's, that's one of those things that if you tell a story like that, especially missing a stair, everybody's got a story and they want to yeah. commiserate with you. I think that is the wonderful edification and support of the church, but it yeah. is hilarious nonetheless. Well, and it was funny because it wasn't just like, oh yeah, I, I fell down the stairs once. It was like, oh, I fell down this stairs once. Right. So it was people, yeah, it was people telling me all the times that they've, they've come down those stairs too fast or they missed a step or they, this or that, and they fell and they hit the door and it was just, it was funny. Yeah. I've, so in point of fact, I have also fallen down, like I'd say the last quarter of those stairs and gone right into the closed door that's at the end of that hallway. Yeah. I'm sure that everybody who's lived in this house has missed a step or two. Actually, the first time that I came to visit um, was like, I don't know, it was like October of the first year that I was in seminary. Ashley brought not just me, but like a whole troop of people. I think there was like six or seven of us that came to visit for the weekend. And um, as we were leaving, one of the girls who was staying up in one of the upstairs bedrooms, I think it's actual bedroom. She was coming down the stairs and I heard a thump. And we were like, are you okay? And she's like, yeah, I'm fine. And then she stood up and then she fell again. And she fell like three different times coming down the stairs where like her feet just slipped off of the <laughs> stairs and she landed right on her butt. So I'm telling you, if you've never been in an old home, you have no idea what we're talking about. It's but it's no you joke. Have, you know that basically somebody built those stairs as an obstacle course for you in your daily yeah. living. Yeah, they were they were not concerned with people falling and hurting themselves. No, I guess we, we can chalk this up to I've heard somebody told me once what well, was because the people were smaller and I was like, how small, like little children. Uh, this doesn't make any I sense. I don't know. And, and it's crazy because I mean like a sprained ankle back in the day could be like, you're going to die cause you can't get food. <laughs> so I, I don't so, know. Maybe, maybe yeah, they were you, trying to thin you out the, know, the, the historical treatment for a sprained ankle was they just take, took you out back and shot you. That was well, it. Yeah. Like they were like, well, it's been a good run. Yeah. Here, bite down on this. <laughs> that's, that's all Here's it was. Twig. Put this in your mouth while I shoot you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that might not be medically correct, but we're also not trained medical professionals. Or probably historians. not. Or, well, I'm a trained historian, but that's probably not right. That's true. That's true. So, uh, Jesse, uh, how would someone get a hold of us if they were interested in uh, contacting the show? I'm so glad you asked, Tony, because one way that people get a hold of us that we would really like people to try out is we have a new voice mailbox. And the number for that voice mailbox is 607 444 Bros, B-R-O-S. So 607-444-2767. And we're hopeful and desperate, actually, that you would call that number and leave us a message, either a word of encouragement about how helpful this has been or a word of exhortation or any other kind of word for that matter, but something that you would come and leave us a message. Yeah. And just a disclaimer, if you leave a message for us, we very likely will use your uh, audio and your name if you leave it on the show. So by uh, leaving a message, you are agreeing to all the terms and conditions of our website. Blah, 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 blah. That yeah, was so my legal disclaimer. That was really good, actually. Um, so basically, we're hoping that this will be a way to kind of extend the conversation beyond just the listening that you do during this short period of time where you're hearing our voices. But give us a chance to participate with you and to be a part of either something that we're covering or something else that maybe you'd like to be a part of the conversation in the future. So call Absolutely. us up. Perfect. So Jesse, we, uh, this is our 30th episode, which is crazy. The big three. Oh, I know we we have reached the 30 week mark. I know it's incredible. Or that's crazy. We, yeah. We're no longer unsettled adults. We've, we've moved out of the basement. I know we're like, years. we're like, uh, middle-aged reformed and podcasting, <laughs> not only in our episode, but also in our person. That's right. So this week is our first week of the month, systematic theology episode. And we have now kind of turned a corner. So the beginning of the systematic sequence and different, you know, it should be said that different systematic theologies approach different things. Traditionally, the reformed start with the doctrine of revelation and the doctrine of scripture. And there's a lot of really good reasons for that. We, however, started with um, the doctrine of God, which there's also a long precedent in not only reform history, but also in um, just theological history. So Calvin starts with the doctrine of God. So we're in good company. But um, where we started was with who God is, 
um, not only um, who God is as Trinity, but who God is, how each person of the Trinity is, how the Trinity functions and coheres. Um, and we talked a little bit about atonement when we talked about the person and work of Christ. But we're going to kind of turn a corner now in our uh, systematic theology from who God is, which is what we are talking about before. Now we're going to start talking more about what God does. So um, our first session tonight is on uh, the doctrine of Scripture or bibliology. So Jesse, you had uh, you had pulled out a uh, chapter of the Confession. If you wanted to go ahead and read that for us, that would be great. Yes, I had. So what I love about this is, to me, this is some of the most beautiful, succinct writing about the Scriptures. And even more than that, I appreciate that this is, as you already said, where the confession starts. So here's what it has to say. And this is from, this is the basically the first, very first paragraph when you open it right up. Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable, yet are they not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of his will, which is necessary unto salvation. Therefore, it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diverse manners to reveal himself and to declare that his will unto his church, and afterwards for the better preserving and propagating of the truth, and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the world, to commit the same wholly unto writing, which makes the Holy Scripture to be most necessary, those former ways of God revealing his will unto his people being now ceased." So this is uh, chapter one, uh, section one of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, the London Baptist Confession of Faith picks this up basically unchanged. And what um, what we're seeing here is, um, you know, the scriptures are set apart as a unique way that God reveals himself. So it begins by saying there are there is general revelation, which there's usually a section in systematic theology on kind of the doctrine of revelation, uh, sort of an abstract. And part of that is that there's what's called general revelation. And it's called general because it's in, it's a general revelation as far as it's general in nature. Um, the same revelation is made to all people. All people receive the same revelation. And it tells us general things about who God is, right? So when you read Romans 1, it says, um, you know, the, the very fact of creation reveals the things that are discernible about God, namely his uh, eternal power and divinity. But it doesn't tell you anything about God as Savior. It doesn't tell you anything about God as Trinity. It doesn't tell you any of those sort of details. And then we shift into what's called special revelation. Um, and special revelation is um, so-called because it is unique to a particular people. And the, the, the confession here starts to go into that where it talks about it pleased the Lord. This is basically a paraphrase of Hebrews 1. It pleased the Lord at sundry times so and in diverse manners to reveal himself and declare his will unto the church. So basically what they're saying is that although there was this general revelation which was sufficient to reveal that God exists and sufficient to condemn sinners, it wasn't sufficient to save sinners. Right. But God saw fit to reveal himself to a particular people at a particular time and in a particular way, in a way that was sufficient to bring them to a knowing, a saving knowledge of who God is. Um, in the Old Testament, if we look at Hebrews, it says in the, um, in the earlier times, uh, God revealed himself to our fathers by the prophets. So God would empower men to speak. Um, his words, he would give them the words to say, and they would come and repeat that to the people. And these words were a special, unique, particular revelation for a special, unique, particular people. Right. But after uh, Christ comes, and uh, not just after Christ comes, but particularly after Christ comes and the close of the apostolic age, no new revelation is being given. And God commits that unique, special revelation um, and the, the, I mean, the confession uses some pretty um, intense words, holy unto writing. Mm -hmm. So everything that God revealed to his people throughout history has found its way in one form or another into the Holy Scriptures. Now, that's there are some traditions that would still affirm that God revealed more about himself outside of Scripture that we just don't have a record of. And they would say something along the lines of like, well, that isn't necessary or that was particular to a time, and so it's no longer applicable. But what the Confession is saying here is that everything that God has revealed that has to do with salvation and, and has to do with the unique way he's revealed himself to his people has now been committed to writing. And the purpose for that is to make sure a establishment and comfort of the church. So God has, has desired and seen fit to set up a stable, 
way for us to have revelation that can be communicated from generation to generation in a way that isn't subject to the same kind of problems that oral tradition tends to have. Right, exactly. And I mean, that's such a huge blessing. I don't think we realize every week when we sit down, more or less, we are all reading the same scripture. So there are differences in translations. Um, there are differences in manuscripts. We're not going to get into text criticism tonight. Thank um, goodness. You know, Textus Receptus versus critical text versus majority. We're not going to get into that. Not to say that's not an interesting discussion, and maybe we'll come back to it in a different episode, but that's that's a bit more technical than we want to get tonight. Um, and we're not going to talk about translation philosophy either. There's a lot of discussion um, around what's the best way to translate. Do we translate thought for thought? Do we translate word for word? Do we preserve the form? Do we not? Um, I just read a really interesting article about even during the Reformation, there were some people who wanted to preserve the form of the language. And there was people who translated, um, basically they were saying Moses was a great orator of his time in Hebrew. So when we translate the Hebrew uh, Pentateuch into Latin, we're going to translate it into the highest, most eloquent form of Latin that we can think of. So they're trying to convey something through the text that's true, but not necessarily the actual words. And we'll get into why. Um, why I think that's problematic, but we're not going to speak a lot about um, translation theory and things like that. Does that that's make good. sense where we're going, Jesse? Yeah, that does make sense. I appreciate that. So many places start with the Bible, and that's because I believe that there's nothing more important or foundational than bibliology. And there's a simple reason, of course. It's because the Bible is a witness to itself. It's God's word, and it should be our authority for belief and practice. And basically, our understanding of God, of man, of salvation, all the other stuff in some ways that we've already spoken about— is really dependent on how much we believe and know the Bible. And right. that goes as well for all other kind of Christian sects or semi-Christian sects or cults that find their root in some way in Christianity. Basically, the reason why they've gone that route is because they have distrusted or abused or misappropriated the Bible itself. Right. So I like what you're saying because we go back to the confessions, not because they're somehow super ordained or super inspired or inspired at all, but I really think that paragraph, which we you were just speaking about, is the, a wonderful brief summary of really explicit and precise language of the beauty of the Bible. And because I think books are ubiquitous in our age, and so ubiquitous, in fact, that now we carry them electronically, it can seem like, well, the Bible is just another resource. It's great. Right. Yeah, it's God's word, whatever we mean by that. But it's, it's just another thing. And we're at least trying to emphasize tonight that it's definitely not just another book. Yeah. And so uh, I'm going to do something we don't normally do. I'm going to give us an outline for where we're going. I love outlines. I love outlines. So there are four. um, When we talk about scripture, we talk about um, maybe we call it their attributes or we might say the perfections of scripture. But we talk about different um, different characteristics that the Bible has. Usually that set it apart from other kinds of texts, but really uh, mostly that define what it is and why it's authoritative. And so tonight we're going to talk about um, the fact that it is inspired. We're going to talk about how the fact that it's inspired entails that it's infallible. And we're going to talk about how since God wants to reveal himself through the scripture, he's made the scripture sufficient to accomplish that goal. And because they're sufficient, they're also clear enough for us to understand them. That's such a good outline. Let's do it. So the first um, the first thing we have to kind of get at is the nature of Scripture and its origin, right? So what distinguishes Scripture, um, what distinguishes the Gospel of Luke, for example, from some other first century or second, we don't have any other first centuries, but some other second century <laughs> um, account of Jesus's life, right? Like the Gospel of Thomas or something like that. Right. Um, the Gospel of Thomas is an interesting example because it's not really a Gnostic Gospel. For the most part, the stuff in there is basically the same content. But we, we say that the Gospel of Thomas is not scripture and the Gospel of Luke is. And why why is that, Jesse? I was hoping you were going to answer that for me. So the reason we do is um, because the scriptures themselves have their origin in God. So um, I should have, you would think that after 30 episodes, we'd be prepared enough to have stuff in front of us. I think it's two, second Timothy three sixteen. Yes, I believe so. so Man, we're working. We always work without a net. We do no net. Uh, let me pull it up real quick. This is no net. No net. We're coming down the stairs full force and just <laughs> seeing if our ankles hold. Yeah, I just shattered the ankle of my podcasting. Yeah. So, um, so Second Timothy three sixteen. Apparently, I'm going to read it in the King James version because that's what my computer just pulled Ooh, up. But that's I like okay. That. Let's do it. KGB. Um, so it says, um, starting in verse sixteen, 
All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. So um, that word inspiration is actually not the greatest way to translate the word. The word literally means um, spirit breathed or spirit given or God breathed or something along those lines. And basically what the, the text here is trying to get at is um, not just that the text is somehow inspired the way we might say that like a poet is inspired by a sunset, just meaning like um, sort of like the like influenced or as like a muse. Yeah, as yeah in- like a muse. It's not just that the, the person writing scripture was so enamored with God that he just his thoughts overflowed into scripture. Right. What we're saying is that the words of scripture are actually proceeding from God. Um, in a way that is not as simple as just mere dictation. We have to, we want to land that. Some people would say sort of dictation theory where the, the person writing is essentially just a pen in God's hand. Um, we don't want to say that. But the words that are on the page of Scripture that came through the apostles are the very words of God. So they, they literally come out of God the way that, or in a way analogous to the way that our breath comes out of our mouth. So it's, it's both... God breathing the scriptures, but also God is active in the scriptures and the words of scripture are the words of God. And that's really important because that's usually kind of the first place that gets attacked when we're talking about um, liberal attacks or critical attacks on scripture is they'll, they'll say things like, well, you know, you might have Karl Barth, who is not necessarily a liberal per se, but is on the more liberal side of things, who will say something like, well, the word of God is contained in the scripture if the spirit if the spirit um, makes it that way. So the scriptures are the words of man, but the spirit can sort of bring those texts to his use. And when the spirit accommodates those texts to his use, then they become the word of God or they contain the word of God. So that's kind of one attack is that the words themselves aren't the word of God. It's just the spirit makes use of them. Um, Or you'll see, well, they're, they're pious reflections of religious men. So they're saying like, well, they're not really God's words. They're just words about God or their words. They're the reflection of the religious community. And and we really want to stand against that. So yes. the scriptures themselves are in an entirely different classification of texts from all other texts. And what's interesting, um, just as a side note, is that kind of puts us at odds sometimes with the way we actually treat the scriptures. Mm-hmm. So if you were to go to a really um, a super conservative um typically like the more dispensational uh, seminaries, but not necessarily just dispensational. What you're going to see in terms of the approach to the scripture is basically treat the text like it was just a human text. Right. So only, only think about it in terms of the historical grammatical context that it's in. Now there's some, there's some wisdom and some truth to that, but when we do that, we're treating it just like it was Cicero or like it was a Harry Potter book or like it was the newspaper. We're not, we're not allowing the spirit to have implanted or imparted messages that were above and beyond or outside of what the original author may have intended. Um, at the same time, though, we have to be careful not to make it so over-spiritualized that the scriptures would have been meaningless to the original audience. So there's a balance in there, and that's part of the art and science of hermeneutics. But we really need to understand that the text comes from God, and so we have to treat it differently. Right. And that's, I'm glad you said it that way because it's good to be aware of what, what criticism looks like so you can spot it from the outset. So anytime you see somebody shying away from terms like inspired and inerrant and in some way trying to do some kind of like semantic linguistics where they're kind of moving around that idea but not touching it specifically, what you're most likely picking up on is the fact that they're trying to avoid using that, the inspired conception because they don't believe that that's exactly true. Right. So it's good to kind of have an eye out for that when you're reading from others and trying to discern, um, because that is, I think, part of the problem as well. That's why we say it's it's not just a special book because it's God's book. I mean, that of course, that is true. But we're talking about different levels of speciality, and we're saying that it needs to be treated differently. So it's not just like it's great and set apart because it is something that talks about God, but we're saying these are words that are coming from God. So therefore, you got to throw out in a real way, almost any other approach that you would bring to a quote unquote normal manuscript, it does right. not apply here. We must have a different rubric to approach it. I mean, at least that's my perspective. You think that's fair? Yeah, I think it is fair. And and part of this is to, especially in our context, the way people approach 
um, texts and the way that people approach writing is very different than every other time in history. So most people approach modern texts as something um, something called reader response theory. And, and basically, reader response theory says that the original author's intention is basically meaningless. Right. So what, what I bring to the text, what the text says to me, um, that is what's important in a text. Um, and in some ways, when a writer is writing a book, I would say that no writer can really write a book. Um, I'm not sure how you would envision a book that has no inherent meaning that you intended. I don't know what that would look like, but some people will claim that when they write, they're writing in such a way that their their intention as the author is meaningless. It is only what the reader brings to it. Which this is where crazy. you get and you get into like art. This is where you get like weird stuff like a blank canvas on the wall. Right. And people call that art because it's like, well, it's not about what the author intended. It's about what the feelings you're feeling. And people have brought this to basically every kind of um enterprise that we have, you know, postmodern architecture, postmodern everything. The one place you don't get postmodern things is like postmodern medicine where you're like, well, I know the doctor said that this is what the medicine does, but I'm just going to see what it does, you know, how it makes me feel. Um, So there are still some scientific bastions where that just isn't the case. But when we come to the scriptures, this is going to sound controversial to a lot of evangelicals who may be listening. It doesn't really matter what the text means to you. Right. So we go to a lot of um, we go to a lot of Bible studies. And what we hear is we go around the circle and people say, well, what does the text mean to you? What does the text mean to you? And at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what it means to you because you're not the person who determines what the meaning is. Now, the the spirit of that question isn't bad. The spirit of the question is probably something like, um, well, how does the text make you feel or how does this text apply to your life? That's kind of the intention. But when we approach the text and we approach it as what does the text mean to me and then say that that's the meaning of the text, we're basically treating the scripture the way a liberal would. Right. That does drive me crazy. Uh, That's a pet peeve of mine. And there's no reason to do that. But even if there were a reason to do that in other texts, um, we really need to um, we need to understand that the scriptures are different where we may be able to stand over another text and judge that text and assess that text. The scriptures stand over us and they judge us because yes. that's the nature of our relationship with the one who spoke that text. Yes. Right. That- Michael Horden um, talks a lot about how the scriptures themselves are the covenant constitution. So when you think about the Constitution of the United States, it's what makes the country exist is the Constitution. That's why it's called a Constitution. It's what constitutes the country. And the covenant Lord spoke the scriptures to us, and our response is that of the covenant servant. So we don't get to come to the covenant Lord and say, well, this is what I think your word really means. We get to come to the covenant and say, yes, Lord, here I am. This is I'm reporting for duty according to your word. That's our role as the covenant servant, Um, not to be like Eve in the garden and say, well, you know, don't even eat it or touch it. Let's add to it. Or to be like the serpent who says, well, is that what God really said? Now, our role is what Adam should have done when God said, where are you, Adam? He should have come forward and said, here I am, Lord, instead he hid. And sometimes that's what we do with the scriptures is we want to stand over the scriptures in judgment and allow ourselves to determine what the scriptures mean. It's true. The big difference is that normally we pick up a text and we read it, but what we're basically saying here is the scriptures read us. You know, all things should be examined, regulated, and reformed according to the scriptures. Exactly. And that's really hard, especially in kind of a postmodern or even post-truth culture. As an aside, that whole like meaningless thing drives me up the wall because I don't even understand how that's true because embedded even in that statement, of course, is like a logical fallacy. Like for somebody to either say or to write, this is meaningless, presumes that that statement itself has meaning. So yeah, it's just crazy, but this shows how far we've come. And it is common practice, I think, in a lot of places where we get together for well-intentioned examining of the scriptures. Instead, what we end up doing is reading our own agendas and biases, sometimes unwittingly, into the scriptures, rather than saying exactly what you said. I'm reporting for duty. I'm going to take the scripture at its face value and I'm going to try to live and be obedient by it. I'm going to make it the sieve through which I pass everything. And what gets caught gets caught because the scripture is regulating life. Right. Yeah, that's that's really, really well said. And so now that, you know, now that we've kind of established the nature of the text as God's words, then we have to look, and this, this is where some of the, the um, discussion comes in in how do we structure systematic theology. Because as we've said before, like you have to make decisions as to what comes first and what comes second. And so some people will say, well, we have to talk about the scriptures first because it's only through the scriptures that we really know God. 
other people would say, and this is kind of where I come from, is, however, we only know that the scriptures are authoritative because we understand the God who spoke them out. So sure. I have no I have no reason to come to the scriptures and see them as inherently authoritative or inerrant or any of those things unless I acknowledge that they came from God. So my starting point has to be God the Father. Or, you know, we have we can talk about the Trinity or different ways of, of talking about theology proper. But my starting point has to be God. Right. And the reason for that is because once we understand that God is truth, God only speaks truth, God only does true things. Then we can understand that since the scripture is proceeding from the very mouth of God, that it is necessarily true in everything it affirms. So that's where we get to um, kind of the, the concepts of infallibility or inerrancy. Now, some people will use those terms in different ways and they'll say, well, infallibility only means that um, in areas of faith and morals, it's never failing. But if you understand the difference between infallibility and inerrancy, infallibility is actually a higher standard than inerrancy. So infallibility doesn't just mean something could not err or could not fail. Um, sorry, infallibility doesn't mean that something did not fail. It means it could not fail. By very nature, it could not fail. When we talk about inerrancy, we simply mean that something isn't error. It doesn't contain errors. So if you are working on a project at work and you've got all your math and your numbers and your different accounts all set up and it contains no errors, you could say that your project and your presentation and your spreadsheets and all the different calculations you've done are inerrant. inerrant right. You couldn't say they're infallible because you are capable of making a mistake. Exactly. So that's kind of the first thing, you know, to sort of from an apologetics angle, when you're confronted with someone who wants to say, well, like, well, I affirm the infallibility of scripture. I just don't affirm the inerrancy of scripture. You can right away say, well, if the scriptures are unfailing and they're incapable of failing, then how could you ever think that they contain an error? Because right. when you're saying something is in, isn't inerrant, you're not just saying, oh, I, I think it could err. You're actually saying, I think it contains errors. Right. So those are much those are terms that are not well understood and not used. So errant, an errant text contains errors. So when someone says that, the first question should be, well, how do you know what's error and what's not? Right. Exactly. They don't exactly. they're hardly ever going to have any kind of answer for you. And that goes back to understanding what the text is, because in order for you to look at the text and say this text contains errors, you have to be able to stand above the scriptures. Mm hmm. And if we understand and root the scriptures and the reliability and trustworthiness of the scriptures in the very trustworthiness of God, then in order to stand above the scriptures in judgment, you also have to be able to stand above God in judgment. Yes. And that's yeah. a that's a pretty lofty you yeah. know, approach. It, I like that you said it that way because that's going with the natural outworkings. Like we, we actually end up breaking the first commandment before we've even started without even realizing right. it. We really have. We, we put ourselves as the seat of adjudication and made ourselves God in that way. Right. And this is why if you don't believe, if you don't think that the scriptures are God-breathed and infallible, then we're not going to think it's profitable or vital for us to really engage with them and make them the rule of our life. So this to me is like a slippery slope, right? If I think it might contain errors or that some of it is inspired, say the thoughts, not the words, then I'm left with this dilemma and I have to make this approach where it's kind of like a buffet. I got to choose according to my own likes and biases. So once again, I am the one who's judging thing out, things out. Like, what do I believe? What do I not? Is it wrong in some places? How can I know that what everything that Jesus said is true, everything about him is true? So it's really a slippery slope that God never intended us for. We're all about slopes tonight. We are. Like, yeah, it's never a slope that God intended us to navigate because we'd just be popping our ankles all over the place. So exactly. it's, it's better not even to go down there. He didn't intend for us to. Right. And that's, I mean, that's again, exactly what we see in the garden, right? The serpent comes forward and he gets, he gets Eve to question whether or not what God said yes, is yeah. actually what God said. And in the very act of doing that, she has now elevated herself above God. She yes. has elevated herself to a place of judgment over God's commands. And um, we'll, we'll get there more when we get to the harmatology section or the section of the fall. But in many ways, um, and I don't, I don't exactly know how to account for this, there are things that happen before the actual first sin, what we consider the first sin. There are things that happen along the way that we would look at and say are sin. Standing above God's judgment and questioning God's commandments, that's a sin. Yeah, for sure. Adam failing to properly protect the garden as he was commanded to and being complacent as he watched his wife disobey the one command that they had been given you. That's sin. 
So I don't know how to explain that. Maybe we can explore that more when we get there. But it all started when Eve allowed God's word to be questioned and allowed the the intention and motivation and purposes of God's commands to be questioned such that she was already elevating herself above God the way that we have to do if we're going to question God's word. And it's funny to me now that you say that, that how the, like the lack of subtlety in that approach. So he yeah. just straight up asked her, did God really say? And that question right. is really not all that different, I suppose, whether it's asked externally or internally. Nowadays, we will often, some people will just literally say that, but we'll often say in our minds, and did God really say this? Is this really right. what he meant? Is yeah. this really the truth? Like this seems a little strange or it seems out of sorts or it seems hard to obey or, or difficult right. for me to imagine that I could obey this. Right. And we're just asking the same question in a different error. Yeah. And we, I mean, oftentimes too, people come to these kinds of conclusions for reasons that are not entirely um, unrighteous or um, coming from the wrong motivation. So William Lane Craig, who we apparently love to have just be our whipping boy on this podcast, <laughs> but he, he will go and he'll face, he faces atheists and most of his theology is developed either philosophically or for apologetic purposes. And so one of the major kinds of questions and concerns that he gets, which is a legitimate thing that people bring up, is what about when God in the Old Testament not only commands Israel to go conquer a land, but to kill women and children, right? Leave nothing alive, kill all the animals, kill all of the people, kill all of the babies. And so he'll get that question and his approach is to say, well, we have to understand you know, that these are texts written by the Israelites and we can't be really sure exactly how God commanded things. And, um, you know, different people will use different approaches. He tends to approach it as kind of a, well, the Israelites, um, the children of those Ammonites would have grown up to be Ammonites. And so by killing them when they're infants, he's actually securing their salvation. He has this long kind of convoluted way that he comes at it. But there are a lot of people that will say, well, what happened actually is uh, the people of Israel went in and they were bloodthirsty and they they killed everybody. And then upon reflecting it, they justified their actions by saying God had commanded it. So they take the whole narrative and they turn it into the reflections of the Israelite people as they're looking back on their history. And what they've done then is they've completely undercut the text. They've turned it into an entirely human text. It right. didn't come from God. It bears no authority other than a kind of historical curiosity of the history of God's people. Um, it has no authority and no purpose and no no ability to change lives. Right. And that's particularly present with the Old Testament, but people do it with the New Testament too, right? Um, Jesus says something like when he's meeting with the, um, the um, Syrophoenician woman and he says, you know, even the dogs eat from, or she says, even the dogs uh, eat from the master's table. And he responds not by saying like, Oh, you know, you, you're, you're a, you're a image bearer. You shouldn't call yourself a dog. He basically affirms what she says. And says, yeah, you're right. So here's some crumbs. That's basically right. what he yeah. says. And the, I mean, the crumbs are healing her daughter. So it's right. It's pretty nice crumbs. But at the end of the day, he doesn't correct her mistaken understanding of race relations and, and race issues in first century Palestine. So some people will look back on that and say, well, he was just a man of his time. And so, so they'll apply even that kind of same reasoning to the incarnation itself. That, well, Jesus was was a man who was specially graced by God, the same way that, like, the scriptures are a text that might be specially graced by God. So I hope that people are starting to see that, like, some of these problems and errors, they're so interwoven in the way that they interact with each other that this is why we have to do good systematic theology. Mm -hmm. Because seeing the way that some of these critiques come in at the scriptures, we're also going to see that they come in on the incarnate word the same way that they've come in at the inscripturated word. And so it's important to understand how these things connect. For sure. And as we said so many times before, if this is maybe among the first time you're kind of just hearing this, it sounds a little foreign or you're thinking it through uh, again, maybe just even rehearsing it. It's good to understand what your convictions are in this and what you believe, because whether or not you understand the fact that it has outworkings in your life, it certainly does. So it's really worth the effort to kind of wrestle with this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So we, we've started out and we've talked about how the, the text is God's words. And because it's God's word, it is uh, infallible. God cannot speak something that is not true. He cannot do something that is not effectual to accomplish his purposes. God can never try to do something and fail. So when he tries to communicate his truth to us, he succeeds. And he's, he's seen fit, as we saw, to do that in the scripture. So, I mean, I think that that probably sort of wraps up that portion of it is the scriptures themselves are trustworthy and reliable and authoritative because they are God's words and not merely man's words. Yes, that's a great way of saying it. 
So that kind of brings us now to the next, uh, the next section, the next two attributes that we want to talk about. Now so that we've, those? so that was um, uh, the sufficiency of scripture mm-hmm. and the perspicuity of scripture, which is just so, a great word. If you haven't heard that word. word before, you should just say it right now out loud. Perspicuity is like the least perspicuous word that there is. Yeah, I love it. We'll get to it. So um, once we've kind of established those first things, now we have to recognize that, um, as we saw in the confession, God desires to reveal himself to us. Um, There are all sorts of places you can go in the scripture to understand that. But God desires to reveal himself to us, and he has desired to reveal himself to us in a way through scripture. So one of the things that we saw in um, that 2 Timothy passage is that the scripture is um, effectual for all of these different things, right? There was a whole list of things. And it says to um, to uh, equip the man of God for every good work or for the work of ministry. There's different ways to translate that. Now we have to realize that if we want to say that the scriptures are sufficient to equip uh, the man of God for every good work, then we have to acknowledge that there's nothing that we need outside of scripture to be equipped for that work. We don't need a church council to tell us exactly what the scriptures mean, um, which we'll get to our next thing. We don't need special revelation, right? So we talked about that when we talked about the gifts of the spirit, that um, I don't need to hear directly from God because I've already heard directly from God in the scriptures. So me hearing a voice from God, an audible voice from the heavens, or like the stars rearrange themselves and they say, um, do this, or they reveal something to me, that is no more direct revelation than the scriptures are. And that's important for us to understand. Um, I'm not sure who said it first. I've heard a bunch of different people say it. But the the old adage goes, if you want to hear God speak, then open the Bible. Oh, if you want to so hear him speak, that. if you want to hear him speak out loud, then read out loud. I was so gonna, you beat me to that quote. I can't believe it. I was always going to say the same thing. I have no idea where it came from, so I'm just going to say it was me. Augustine. I think Augustine said. Oh, it. Augustine. Sorry. Yes. It actually Augustine. does sound like something Augustine would say, because contrary to the way Catholic uh, theology would want you to believe, uh, Augustine was absolutely a person who was sold out on the authority of the scripture. Um, and it's all over the place in his work where he says basically like, don't appeal to me, don't appeal to the church, appeal to the scriptures. And he wants, you know, he wants to affirm and we'll talk about it later, but he wants to affirm that reading the scriptures in isolation from God's people, uh, not just God's people that are currently living, but the, his, the, the history of God's people uh, is dangerous. But he's saying, um, absolutely unequivocally that the scriptures are the final and ultimate authority that settle all matters of, of controversy in the church. Right. One of the things that I think that's really unfortunate that I see is almost more obvious today within the evangelical community is that even a lot of people who call themselves Christians theoretically at least claim allegiance to the Bible as the all sufficient and authoritative rule of faith. Right. But in practice, they raise other things, uh, other sources on a level that's either even with or above the scripture as the authority for what they believe in practice. And even I find myself in this temptation and like sometimes I would rather pick up a book about the Bible than the Bible itself. Or right. we see people flocking to other types of teachers like Joel Osteen, unfortunately, and they raise that person's interpretation of the Bible above the Bible itself. Right. So we really got to keep it, you know, like above board, so to speak. Like I remember um, hearing from like a very, um, a much older, more conservative Christian, their conviction that when it came to the physical binding of the text, the scripture itself and its manifestation in their hand, the actual, you know, pages, that they would never let, I don't know if you've ever heard this before, never let something sit on top of it and that for them was at least an expression that in the same way that I'm not going to put another Bible, excuse me, like another book, anything else on top of my Bible, in the same way that's the authority has over rule of life. It's yeah. like a physical reminder to me. It's kind of a weird expression of that, but I get the heart of that. And that's right. like a serious commitment to always put the scriptures first. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so when we understand um, that God wants to reveal himself in scripture, that he want that's the way he's chosen to reveal himself to us. Um, and to probably to most, I would say to most of God's people throughout history has been um, through some sort of inscripturated word. Um, then we understand that because he wants to do that, it's sufficient to accomplish his goal. Yes. And that goes back again. You know, all of this is rooted in the nature of God. If God is who he says he is, and if God is all powerful and all, um, all wise, then he is able to get us the scripture in a way that is sufficient for what he intends us to do. Mm. Right. So not only is it God's words, so it carries an inherent authority and an inherent trustworthiness, but he has not left anything unsaid that needs to be said to us. 
So, you know, like I said, that you see that in a lot in charismatic circles, that there has to be like a contemporary word from God. Um, it, it sort of comes out in Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox circles where the scripture is materially sufficient, meaning that everything you need is there in terms of the, the raw data. But you need an infallible interpreter to be able to tell you what it means. Otherwise, it's just raw building blocks and you might get it wrong, which is true. We might get it wrong. Right. But um, that'll come to our next point is the scriptures are also sufficiently clear for what God intends them to be. Exactly. And that's what we call perspicuity. It's just a fancy way to say clear. So I'm going to go back to the Westminster Confession because I think sometimes um, we hear this and we misunderstand what's being intended here. So um, if you go back to chapter one of the uh, Westminster Confession, you go to article seven. It says, all things in scripture are not alike plain to themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of scripture or other, that not only the learned, but the unlearned, in due use of the ordinary means, may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. So just to break that down, he you know, the, the Westminster divines are saying Look, we get that there are some parts of Scripture that are are complicated and difficult. Um, the Book of Revelation is much more difficult to understand than Proverbs thirty, right? Proverbs thirty is pretty straightforward. Right. The Book of Revelation, not so much so. Um, you know, uh, the Gospels are relatively straightforward. They're a historical narrative with a theological purpose. the The Book of Daniel is not quite as clear. Um, and even in the scriptures, we see that, right? Peter, when he's talking about the scriptures, yeah, I was just he, gonna say this. he includes Paul's letters, but then he says, but Paul is sometimes difficult to understand. <laughs> so even Peter, who granted was an unlearned fishing, fisherman, um, even Peter can look at Paul's letters, which first of all tells us that Paul's letters were circulating very early in the church. But he can look at them and say, you know what? I don't really understand what he's saying here, right? There's a passage in Colossians that um, basically says something like, um, you complete the sufferings of Christ in your body on behalf of the church. I have no idea what that means. Yeah. I will be straight up honest and say, I have no idea what that means. Right. It's confusing. It's confusing. Um, but even Peter recognized that. Right. And then it goes on um, to say, however, everything that needs to be known for salvation, everything we need to understand in order to know who God is, what he expects of us, and how we are to be saved is clearly explained in one place or another. So John 3.16 is the perfect, uh, the perfect place to go, right? There are ways that you can read that text that make it like incredibly rich and deep and theologically significant and biblical theology, redemptive history significant. But at the end of the day, anyone who can read the Bible in English can read that and know that all that's required for salvation is belief in God, in his son, and that God loved us so much that he sent his son. Now, th- there's no way to get that wrong. If you're, if you're coming to the scripture, an atheist can come to scripture and look at that and say, yeah, this book is saying that God loved us so much that he sent his son in order for us to be saved and not be destroyed. Amen. However, Amen. like I said, if you, you get into understanding it in terms of Greek, you understand that the so in God's so loved the world, it's not an intensifier, but a demonstrative. So God loved the world in this way. That adds another layer to the text. If you understand that whosoever believes is actually probably more better translated as all of the believing ones, then we start to get into discussions about limited atonement and um, election and all of those kinds of things. So there's there's depth to the text, but you don't need to be a scholar in order to glean from the surface of that passage the whole gospel or more or less the whole gospel. And in that way, it's a really miraculous and benevolent thing that the the unsearchable mind of the universe would make the main things the plain things and the plain right. things the main things. So there's yeah. real that's really a great gift. I, I know that we like to parse out the nuance of the scripture because it brings us joy to search these things about God. And, and the scriptures encourage us to do that. At the same time, it is a blessing to be able to stand on the shoulders of God's disclosure and revelation because revelation takes work. Like if you're, you're going to try to draw close to somebody by explaining who you are, by giving them insight into your life and your character, your essence, all that kind of good stuff. That is something that is a gift to that other person. And God in the same way has done that for us. And again, I love the fact that he's made it simple enough that a child can understand it and embrace that wholeheartedly, unreservedly, and yet spend the rest of their lifetime plumbing the depths of the scriptures, but still always come back to this truth, which is plain and beautiful. 
Yeah, absolutely. And so uh, the last part of that chapter, uh, the last part of that section, I think brings us to something that I want to, I want to close with, uh, and then we can kind of have some thoughts on practicality is, um, the last part says that, um, not only the learned, but the unlearned in a due use of ordinary means may attain unto the sufficient understanding of them. Now, it's important for us to remember that throughout the majority of history, the ordinary means that are being referred to is the the oral preaching of the word uh, on the Lord's day by a pastor. So throughout history, most people were not able to get their own copy of scripture and read it for a number of reasons. First, most people throughout history couldn't read. And second, books for most of history, and even right now, books are extremely expensive, and they were difficult to make. And so the idea that we have in modern times that like, well, it's me and my Bible in my bedroom, or me and my Bible under the under the sycamore tree, and that's all that I need. Um, sycamore tree? I, I don't know. Sycamore <laughs> tree. I think I got that confused with, um, with Zacchaeus. what's his name? Zacchaeus, yeah. I don't know. Some some tree. An oak tree. The Oaks of Mamre. I don't okay. know. Um, that can be really, really dangerous. And the reason for that is because God never intended Christians to do this by themselves. So we have to remember, you know, as we said, the scriptures are sufficient to accomplish what God intended them to accomplish, but they're not going to do something he didn't intend them to accomplish. So um, God didn't intend Lone Ranger Christians. You know, we talked about it in the church membership episode. He didn't intend us to go off on our own and, and exist in our own pockets of reality. So while it's true that if um, an atheist crashes a plane on a desert island, that somehow they don't starve to death or dehydrate to death, but they have a Bible, that it's absolutely true that simply by reading that scripture and with the illumination of the Holy Spirit, they could come to a saving faith and knowledge of God. Of course, um, that doesn't mean that they're going to have a fully orbed understanding of the Trinity. It doesn't mean right. they're going to have a fully orbed understanding of divine election or the way that the world will come to an end and be renewed. Uh, but they'll be able to come to a saving faith in Christ. But those exceptions do not prove that those are the rule. The exception proves the rule. The fact that we look at that and recognize that that is an, an unusual circumstance that we have to explain tells us that that's not the way that it was intended to be. Right. So um, I think that it's really important, and this is this is exactly why we go back to the creeds and confessions as often as we do. Not because, as we've said many times, not because we think that they're somehow in, inherently um, more accurate or more uh, reliable than any other particular interpretation, but because they give us boundaries and they help protect us from spiraling off into these crazy sort of uh, fits of fancy and interpretive um oddities and in in some cases really dangerous theology right and they're wonderful synopses of really complicated topics really synthesized down or distilled down to the salient pieces and just as they've done in our discussion right now they push you back into the scriptures right they, they prompt you to go back to examine the full counsel of god's word as it has been summarized by these men yeah absolutely so i want to read one more passage um and I'm some reason I'm still in the King James, but I don't think it makes a difference in this one. Um, I want to read one more passage here that has, I think, lands on a couple of significant points, and then we can maybe um, go to some practical things. And this is Second um, Peter one, uh, starting in, we'll say sixteen. He says, "For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ." but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice from him, to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mountain. We have also a more secure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed as unto a light that shineth in the dark place until the day at dawn and the day star arises in your heart. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men spoke of God as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So the reason I want to land on this is for two reasons. Peter is reflecting, and we talked about this in church this morning, which is why it's on my mind, but Peter is reflecting on his experience on the Mount of Transfiguration, where he saw the a preview of the risen and glorified Christ. And he saw a preview of heaven when he saw the glorified humanity of Moses and Elijah. So he's got this in his mind's eye. And he still says, 
even though I experienced that, even though I saw Christ, and you could add to this the fact that he saw the risen Christ, that he received visions, authoritative prophecies, even though he had all that, he still says, we have a sure word of prophecy. And it goes down in verse 20 to say, prophecy of the scripture. So Peter is talking here about the inscripturated word of God. He's not talking about direct revelation that he's received. He's saying, we've received the scriptures and we've given them to you and they are a more sure word of prophecy. And then he says, no prophecy of scripture is of private interpretation. And that's that's where I think I want to kind of wrap up our more theoretical discussion is that the, the scripture is for every person to read. Uh, I don't want to say on their own. It's for them to read for themselves. It, right. they're, they're, we're supposed to go to the scripture and read it ourselves and verify what it says. But we are not to read scripture as individuals. We're to read scripture observing the voice of the church and listening to the voice of the church throughout history and most especially in the congregations that are, are that God has put us in. That the voice of my pastor, we said it last week, preaching the word of God is the word of God. And it's the word of God for me in a unique way that it may not be the word of God for someone listening to it on a podcast. So pay attention to what your pastor has to say about the scriptures. And if your pastor is not preaching the word of God, then find a different pastor. Right. It can't, we can't say any more clearly than that. That may sound harsh, but there is a community hermeneutic here that the Lord has intended for us with his word. And uh, we do him and us a great disservice. We basically water it down. We move away from it. We're prone to more error when we do not abide in that community hermeneutic. Yeah. So, so Jesse, I think um, this topic sort of lends itself to practicality. Like I'm not even sure, sure. exactly what, what we could say that's more practical than that. Um, it's almost like this theology itself is inherently practical. Yes. But what, um, what are some things that you might recommend in terms of how do we take this understanding of scripture and really give it some legs to, to live out in our life? So sometimes I think when this kind of thing comes up, especially among seasoned Christians, we feel like the the guilt train coming fast behind us because we, we think the lesson here is that the Bible is ubiquitous in our day and age. We have, I mean, somebody will say like, how many copies do you have? And how many of those copies are gathering dust? And how many do you have, you could have on your phone or on your watch or in, in every conceivable medium that you could see at any given time. And I've struggled with that as well. And uh, I think what I've come to is a failure in my own life to just enjoy the Bible. And that's something yeah. I'm working on that. We, we kind of approach it as something that we need to endure. Even when we think of like, well, I need to spend some daily time or I should, I will feel better if I spend some daily time in it, but I'm really trying to enjoy God's word. And what's brought me the kind of right perspective, of course, not surprisingly is what the Bible authors who were inspired had to say themselves about the Bible. So here are a couple of things I want to share real quick about uh, some verses that have been really helpful to me in trying to shape these men of God, women of God, who I admire, who are in the scriptures, what they said about the scriptures themselves and what it meant in application in their lives. So some of these are from the Psalms. So the Psalmist writes, In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. Or listen to this verse. This is, this is a really interesting verse to me. This is from Psalm 119 as well. The insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. I love that this like yeah. juxtaposition between like there's something and I don't quite haven't really metabolized this in all its glory yet, but this idea that there's this juxtaposition between the unfeeling like fat, um, which has no sensibility, of course, about it, but delighting in God's law. And then lastly, yeah. from the end of that same chapter, I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. So like, in other words, God's word, uh, the scripture tells us better than a really great day at shopping, better than a great day at work or the beach or being with your friends. There's something more to treasure in it than anything else that we could possibly get our hands on. And here, of course, David is equating that with actual goods, which is t- tends to where our hearts want to leap toward. Like it's, I, I got a really great gift or I got a really great promotion or I got a really great tax refund. And so giving me this kind of intent with which to approach the scripture is helping build, I think, for me, the right content of God's word and its application. So I would say, first off, try to just enjoy the scriptures and not endure them. Um, Yeah, that's great. That's really great. And um, I would add, um, sometimes I think we can come to the scriptures and first we read them in ways they weren't really intended to be read. Right. So we, you know, we sit down and we go, well, I really need some comfort. So I, or I really, 
Um, I just really love the book of Hebrews and chapter seven is my favorite verse. So I'm going to sit down and read chapter seven. Yeah. Um, the, the book of Hebrews isn't just chapter seven. So uh, I would say, you know, one of the things that's been really helpful for me, I've mentioned it a couple of times is get a good Bible reading plan. Um, and, and don't follow it legalistically. Like if you miss a day, just, you know, catch up or, or don't, but you get something that adds some structure to what you're doing. And the best Bible reading plans will, um, inherently guide you to read the scriptures the way they were intended. So they're usually going to be structured. You know, sometimes you get like 10 days on light and you just get like a smattering of verses that have the word light in them. Those aren't really great Bible reading plans, but the good ones that are, you know, they're going to have you go through a whole book of the Bible in order, or they're going to have you go through the whole Bible. You're going to be reading chunks of text at a time. Those are really good. And, um, I've tried, uh, in the past there's, um, Dr. I think it's Grant Horner has a Bible reading plan where you read, he's got this text chopped, you know, chopped up into 10 different types of text and you read 10 chapters a day. But what's really nice about this plan is you can, you can rearrange things. So for example, I took mine and I rearranged it. So he has you reading the book of Acts every single day forever. You read a chapter of Acts all the time, no matter what. And I don't think that that's bad. The book of Acts is great and it's great to understand, but separating, this is what I'm saying, like separating Acts from Luke is not a great idea because Luke and Acts were meant to be read together. So I've changed it. So I took that ax and I put it in with the gospel and then I took revelation out of the epistles and I added it to the end of that. So I'm reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, Acts, John, Revelation. And there's all sorts of strengths to that. But the point is that get yourself something that gets you in the scriptures daily and gets you reading the scriptures the way that they were intended to be read. Right on. And that can yeah, really help with like that drudgery that. that you're talking about is that if I yes. sit down and I don't know what to read, right. I'm much more likely to just like flip through a couple pages, read a couple verses, and then get discouraged and close it and go on with my day. But if I have, I sit down and I've got a checklist and I say, all right, I'm going to read these, these 12 chapters or these, you know, half chapter or whatever I'm going to read, whatever your reading skill is, you're much more likely to accomplish it and you're going to feel better about accomplishing it. And it's not about feeling good. Like you shouldn't read the Bible to make you feel good, but sometimes you have to be able to feel good about what you're doing in order to persist in doing it. Yeah, to enjoy it. And yeah. it's it's trying to get that way. Yeah, I know this is not a new recommendation, but I, I don't know what you use, but for me, what I've grown accustomed to using that I really love is the Olive Tree app is really great for that. And yeah. it, it has a wonderful list of like legit, some of them are a little bit part and parcel, but some really legit Bible reading plans. And I like the McShay reading plan and yeah. it's all done for you. And it, that's four passages a day throughout the scriptures but it advances you from one to the next when you're done reading. So you can just go seamlessly. It's set up for you. You don't have to keep a bookmark and try to keep in four places and try to check everything off. Right. There's no reason why we can't take advantage of all the wonderful conveniences that technology affords us with being able to structure our Bible reading. Because yeah, absolutely. You're, you're right. I'm really convicted by that. As Christians, we should be grateful that God's word does not allow our lives to go unchecked, unchallenged, unchastened. The more mature we become, we should be really be more grateful for that. Not just like cherry pick our hobby horse passages or the things that we really like, but to get again the full counsel of God. And th- I think what you're saying does not at all go against the community hermeneutic that we just spoke about because we should be taking every opportunity, even when we're by ourselves, to basically sit and marinate in God's word. No- nothing bad is going to happen because of that. We-, we then need to come before the body and be- come before uh, our pastors and participate in that community interpretation of God's word, but we should always be trying to get more of it in us and let it read us so that yeah. we become saturated and influenced just like we do by the things we read elsewhere or the TV shows that we watch. We want God's word to influence to such a degree that it becomes like automatic and natural. It, it curtails our thinking. It frames our minds and we can't do that except if we come to it regularly. Yeah, absolutely. One last um, recommendation, and I'll put a link into this. Um, there's a website called the Christian Classics Ethereal Library. It's ccel.org. And uh, they have Matthew Henry's entire unabridged commentary, as well as his shorter commentary, all of Calvin's commentaries available for free. And so if you ever struggle with a passage, uh, those are good, reliable, trustworthy uh, voices that you can listen to. And on the flip side, there are a lot of times that I will be reading a passage and I'll say, this is what I think it means. And then I go and look at Matthew Henry and I'm like, that's not at all what it means. And so having those voices <laughs> is a way to protect yourself from believing wrong things about God, which isn't something that we, you know, anyone wants to do. Right. So um, ccel.org, I'll send a link 
link to that. There's also all sorts of other really great resources on there too, but I'll put a link in the show notes to that. And um, one last recommendation or slash request. If you could head over to iTunes and uh, leave us a five-star review and a little comment about what you love about the show, uh, that would be really great. If you don't love the show, then uh, I'm not sure why you're still listening to it. But if you love us and want us our show to get better, then you can leave a rating that's appropriate for your rating and uh, give us a little polite comment about what we can do better, and we would be happy to take a look at those. That seems a bit like the difference without distinction between inerrancy and infallibility, doesn't it? Like if you if you hate our show, but you really love us. <laughs> I don't know. I'm thinking like if our wives wanted to go and they wanted to be like, your show is stupid. Here's what you should do better. But <laughs> they love us. That's um, fair enough. Then maybe, maybe, I mean, if I would think they would probably just tell us. That's probably true. Although yeah, it would be funny true. if they want to do it through a comment or better yet, if you're listening to this and not in a vehicle right now, pick up your phone. Dial 607-444-BROS and leave us a message. That would be great too. Well, that just about does it. Um, We are glad that you joined us and we look forward to uh, talking more theology and life next week. Jesse, do you have any closing words of wisdom? Go forth and enjoy your Bible. There you go. Sounds good to me. All right, we will see you all next week. I just called to say I love you. I just called to say how much I care.